0: Well, we are almost at the end of a year that for many has been, it's been hard. Every year is hard, right? And 2021 is going to be, be hard for its own reasons. But this year feels unique for, for many of us. It feels, I don't know about for you, but I, many people I've, I've talked to, it seems like a, a joy-stealing year. And in many ways, it kind of has sapped our, our joy. Unique combination of the pandemic, political unrest, racial turmoil. It's produced in just kind of the atmosphere that we we breathe fear and frustration and a fatigue that seems uniquely joy-sapping. And one of the ways that I think I've seen it manifest itself, all of this, uh, in my own life, and I think in the life of, of many people, is, is a temptation toward selfishness, a temptation toward self-centeredness, toward a, a pride and a, a tribalism of who else is like me or thinks like me, and, and an entitlement sometimes to, to sin or to just doing things that, that maybe wouldn't normally do. We feel more of a permission to just cancel people because we're tired and we've had enough. Well, all of that that's going on in in the world, it doesn't just affect the world, but it affects the church as well. Some of that has seeped into this church and to to many other churches. And and that atmosphere, it, it resonates with our flesh and it it works against the unity in, in the church. It, it works against charity toward one another. It works against a tender heartedness toward one another that, that it seeks to serve, and to forgive, and to love, and to bear with one another. Well, is there any remedy for this joy-sapping sort of atmosphere? Is there any sort of, of help any remedy for our reeling, any help for our hurts, any power to produce the sort of love that, that we know that, that Christ has shown us. Well, I think it's exactly what Paul is getting after in the book of Philippians. He's writing from a jail cell to this congregation about joy, about what it means to have joy in the midst of whatever circumstances we may have and a joy that liberates us to love because we have been humbled by the sort of love that God has shown us. And that's what we're going to consider this morning in the book of of Philippians. If we're going to summarize this text that we're looking at this morning, it might be something like this. Learn to love in humility by looking to Jesus who humbled Himself for us. Learn to love and have power to love Learn to love in humility by looking to Jesus who humbled himself for us. Now, this morning, uh, if, you, if you read ahead, you likely just read chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. We're actually going to back up just a little bit to chapter 1, verses 27. And we're going to look at 127 through 30. We're going to see that we're going to conduct yourselves as heavenly citizens. We'll be there briefly. Conduct yourselves as heavenly citizens. And then in chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, we're to consider others with humble concern. Consider others with humble concern. And then in 5 through 11, we're to cultivate humility by beholding Christ. Cultivate humility by beholding Christ. Let's let's turn to God's Word here. Chapter 1 of Philippians, verse 27. We're going to see the need to conduct yourselves as heavenly citizens. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in Him, but also suffer for His sake, engage in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have." Paul is writing to this church, he's writing from a jail cell where he is reminding them about the fact that he is indeed suffering on behalf of Christ and he's calling them to endure suffering for the glory of His name. And this here in chapter 1, verse 27 is actually the first command in the whole book of Philippians. And the rest of the commands in the book flow from this one right here, where he says, verse 27, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel, the gospel of Christ. This gospel of Christ, if you're not familiar, it's it's the good news that, that Jesus, the Son of God, came among us, that he took on flesh, and he lived a perfect life, unlike the one that any of us have ever lived. And then he suffered and he died on a cross there, uh, suffering for our sins, not for his own, being punished and receiving the wrath that we deserved. And then he went into the grave. And then three days later, he rose from the dead. And now the good news is that no matter where you've been or what you've done, if you turn from your sin and you trust in him, you can be forgiven and reconciled to God. He's beginning with this, this good news And if you're here this morning and you know yourself to not be a Christian, that's good news for you if you will but turn and believe upon this Jesus who you hear of this morning. For those who are in Christ, who says, yes, I believe that, that's true, that's me, he says that reality should now transform everything about your life. If indeed you are in Christ, it should change the way that we live for Christ. That's what he means when he says here, let your manner of life be worthy. The word there is used to describe the citizen's way of life, that if you're a citizen, there's a certain way you're supposed to act. It's echoed in chapter 3, verse 20, that our citizenship is in heaven. One of the things he's telling this church is, listen, we have a dual citizenship, if you will. You live where you are, but you are not of where you are. We are citizens in heaven that is granted to you as a privilege of the Gospel, that we are now believers in Christ, that He is our King, and now we here on this earth live in light of that. The way we live here is in light of what God has done for us and united us with, with Christ. And we are to live a manner worthy of the Gospel. It means to our life should fit the weight and the, the worth of the gospel. Our lives should agree with and promote and commend Jesus. He's saying if indeed you are in Christ, we should live as if we know Him in the way that we speak to one another, in the way that we act toward one another because it either honors or dishonors Jesus, our Savior and our King. So we should live with with unity, he says here, standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. The church is to to set its mind on on Christ, being united in in what pleases Him, walking in step. The picture there is is side by side like soldiers marching together. That's the picture of the church. We lock arms and we're walking together. Though we're a people of all kinds of diverse backgrounds and opinions and thoughts on all kinds of other things, we can lock arms because together in Christ, we have a unity that He gives. There's something that binds us together. It's called grace that supersedes all of our other opinions and and delights. We are laboring for the faith of the gospel. But we do this knowing that, that resistance is coming. And as we preach through the book of Revelation, we've seen that there's a spiritual unseen world that is battling against us. We have the flesh in ourselves. We have the world itself. There, is, there are many obstacles and opponents to walking together in humble love together for the glory of Christ, representing His name. But he says in verse 28, don't be scared. Don't be scared in your stepping with Christ and with one another. He says, verse 28, do not be frightened in anything by your opponents. You see, not everyone loves Jesus. So no matter what they say, no matter what they do, no matter what they threaten, you must not be moved, he says to them and to us, because you know that the Lord is with you and the Lord is for you. And your faith in Christ, in the midst of all of these circumstances that oppress against God's people, he says here, it's a clear sign to them, to the unbelieving world that oppresses the believers of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. What he's highlighting here is that as Christians march together representing Jesus, locking arms to help other people come to know Jesus, that there's going to be two responses to this gospel that is proclaimed. One is going to lead to deliverance and salvation, and the other is going to lead to destruction. Those who believe are saved. They are rescued from this this perishing world. But those who resist the good news that we just proclaimed and and, and who Christ says He is, those who resist it, destruction is coming. We serve as a warning, if you will, to, to the world. And He encourages them here. Don't give up heart. Verse 29, it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in Him, but also suffer for His sake. Engage in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. He concludes with this this reminder that we are given, as Christians, the unique honor of not only knowing Jesus, not only believing in Jesus, but to be so closely associated with Jesus that you will be treated as He was. As one who was rejected, in this world, Jesus said, John 15, 20, A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. But he encourages the church, Jesus did, that there is reward waiting. Matthew chapter 5, the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Now, the reason I thought it was important for us to to look at these couple verses before we jump into chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, and the exhortation for us to love one another is because it sets the context here that this church was in that very much feels like the one that we're in, that we are in a world that is opposed to Christ by things that are seen and that are unseen, and it presses against us in a way that we need a reminder that it's normal to be suffering in this life. It's a fallen world where sin abounds. It makes sense that people who oppose Jesus are going to oppose the work of the Gospel. So we're not to be surprised by these fiery trials, Peter would tell us, but rather we are to lock arms and be like-minded because you've got to know that one of the things that Satan wants to do in the midst of our sufferings, in the midst of persecution as it comes, in the midst of the trials and the tribulations is to stir up division in the church so that we don't love one another, so that we're not helping one another, but rather we begin to demonize one another and, and divide from one another and not love one another which confuses the world about who Jesus is, and it also dishonors God himself. So what we need is we need, we need grace from God to humble us, to help us to see one another rightly, and that only comes from seeing Jesus rightly, which is what he does in the rest of the section that we're looking at this morning. So chapter 1, 27 through 30, consider yourselves as heavenly citizens. We're representing Jesus here. On earth with our King in heaven, empowered by his Spirit, loving one another in the midst of suffering. And now we're to consider others with humble concern. This is gonna help us in our loving of one another. Chapter 2, verse 1 through 4. So, in light of all of that, if there's any encouragement in Christ, if there's any comfort from love, if there's any participation in the Spirit, if there's any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. He's teaching us here to consider others with, with humble concern. And the way he does it here in these opening couple verses is he gives four if-then statements. Now, it's interesting if you have an ESV translation, not all of the ifs show up there. You see, so if there is any. If you have an NIV, though, um, or uh, probably an NASB, it'll all, you'll see the other if. There's four ifs there. And this is this is his way of showing the church, if these things are true, then we should respond this way. It's helping the church reflect on the blessings that they've received in Christ. So Paul, when he says, if you've received these things, he's not in any way suggesting that these things might not be true. But since they are true, there's a way that we should respond. So a good illustration that I heard of, of how this might, uh, uh, we might say this in another way. So I don't know what life is like in your house if you, if you happen to have children that abide there with you, uh, but, but laundry is a thing. And sometimes kids, for whatever reason, just expect laundry to be, you know, done and in their drawers and all that kind of stuff, which I suppose I did the same thing as a kid. But something you might say to a child is, if I bought your clothes, and if I washed your clothes, and if I dried your clothes, and if I folded your clothes, then you can put them away. That's the same exact sort of reasoning that Paul is going to give here for this church. If Jesus has done this and this and this and this and this, then wouldn't it seem appropriate for you to respond in such a way? Let's watch his his logic here in chapter 2, verse 1 again. If there is any encouragement in Christ. So have you been encouraged by your union with Jesus? Have you been encouraged by the abundant grace that He has given to you? Have you been encouraged by His constant provision? If there is any comfort from love, have you been comforted by God's love toward you, His compassion toward you, His concern for you? Have you been consoled by His mercy? And he says if if there's any participation in the spirit it's a, a common uh, it's a Greek word koinonia that's that's used to talk about fellowship have you shared in fellowship with god by the holy spirit have you been enriched by the love of his church if if there's any af- affection and sympathy has your heart been warmed by god's love for you have you been moved by his mercy that forgave you if 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 then verse 2 Complete my joy, he says. If all those things are true, if that reservoir of God's love and mercy and grace is true in your life, then he says, Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Paul says, Complete my joy. It's like he's saying, Fill the cup of my heart to the brim. How? By being like-minded. By showing humble love toward one another. He says, "That, that gives me joy to see you as believers who have received so much love and mercy and grace from God responding appropriately by showing love and grace to one another. Two interesting observations, by the way, so far in this text, particularly this section. The first is this. I was helped by Lig Duncan on a couple of these, some excellent insights here. Number one, our our obedience is fueled by God's grace. Our obedience is fueled by God's grace. Did you notice what he's pointing to? To to motivate us to pursue unity. To motivate us to, to pursue humility and to pursue love, Paul points to how God has already loved us. Our God leads by example. God never asks you to give something that he hasn't already given to you. He never tells you to do something that he has not already done for you. Have you been encouraged by Jesus? Well, then shouldn't you encourage others as he's encouraged you? Have, have you been forgiven by Jesus? Well, then shouldn't you forgive others? Not to pay back. You can never pay back. But as the right response, it, there's a reservoir of grace that God's people draw from to do what God calls us to do. Obedience flows from grace. So you don't obey in order to get right with God, you obey because he's made you right. It flows from it. Our obedience is fueled by God's grace and Paul taps into that here for the church. He says, see how much he's loved you, let that move you to love others. Second thing, which is, uh, we've discovered this in Bible time and going through uh, second and third John. Uh, it's striking is that our joy is tied to others obedience our joy as christians is tied to other christians obedience did you notice here how paul's joy is in some sense dependent upon the obedience of the philippians he says complete my joy he's certainly satisfied in christ Christ is all he needs, right? At the same time, there is a very real sense in which our joy is made full when other believers are obeying Jesus by obeying God and pursuing unity and showing love. So how other Christians obey Jesus should matter to us. One of the things that Paul wants us to know is that this is not just about us and like me, we don't just come this morning to say what can I get for me? We do come to be helped by God, but we come to be helped by God so that we can also help others obey God. And whether you're obeying Jesus or not should matter very much to me, and whether I'm obeying Jesus very or not should matter very much to you. Our joy, in some sense, is tied to one another's obedience. And Paul's highlighting that here for the church to see. So he says, if you have been blessed by your union with Jesus, then bless me by being of the same mind. Think the same way. That doesn't mean that they have no independence of thought, but rather they have an intent and a disposition Of going in the same direction together. You see, being of the same mind doesn't mean that we think about everything the same way. Being of the same mind does not mean that we think about everything in the same way. This is, I mean, we could pull this room right now, and believe it or not, this is an opinionated congregation, and you guys hold it well, but people have a lot of opinions about a lot of stuff in here, right? Everybody's favorite color is not the same in here. Everybody's favorite team is not the same in here. I mean, on our elder board, we have Bears fans, Packers fans, Vikings fans, you know, I mean like only in Christ can we love one another, right? This happens. We don't have the same opinions about masks. We're not going to have the same opinion about vaccines. We're not going to have the same opinion about about why there's racial tension and what it means to move forward in it. We're not going to have all of the exact same opinions. So what does he mean here when he says, be of the same mind? It means that we share the mind of Christ. We are, in the midst of all of our diverse opinions on things, we're going to have the same attitude, the same disposition of heart, the same outlook that Jesus had where where nothing is more important than the top priority of glorifying God and enjoying Him and helping others to do the same. No matter how many differing opinions we have on things, we're going to be lockstep in those primary things. So unity is not uniformity in regards to culture, style, preferences, secondary issues, but unity is uniformity of thinking that Jesus is supreme and that in the midst of our discussions about things that could divide us, what we're going to agree on at the beginning and at the end of our conversation is that Jesus needs to be honored in this. The way I talk to you is almost as important as what I say to you. our tenderness toward one another, our listening to one another, our humility toward one another, all of that teaches something, it displays something, something that we have seen before if we know Jesus. Well, how do we have this, how do we do this? Verse 3, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. So Paul puts two enemies of Christian love on blast here for us: selfish ambition and conceit. Selfish ambition, it can be translated rivalry. It's a a, a word that that, that means climbing over another to get what you want. Now, I I want I want you to hear what I have to say. Now I, I want this song. No, I think we should do it this way, where you're climbing over somebody else to make sure you get heard. That's an enemy of love, he says. As is conceit. Or if you got your King Jimmy there, it probably says vain glory. Which is a great translation. Vain, empty, glory. Empty glory. It's it's glory gained by somebody who doesn't deserve it. The same way you might think about an athlete who, who wins a competition and use steroids, right? They may get a trophy, but that's vain glory. They don't deserve that. He says, that doing whatever you need to do to get your way, no matter who it hurts, that is an enemy of love. 1 Corinthians 13.5 says it this way, love does not insist on its own way. Love does not insist on its own way. Love does not insist on its own way. You see, the most potent obstacle to unity isn't the presence of sincere and significant differences, but rather the great, the great obstacle to unity is the self-centered attitude that sees your preferences, your pains, your talking points as priority over everybody else around you. And this this is natural to us, right? I mean, kiddos, especially now during Christmas time, there's something that manifests itself in children. It's just me me me, you know? But but this is it's always there, right, kiddos? I mean, like, I want my toy, my games, I want to watch what I want to watch. Thankfully, adults never struggle with any of that. We just grow up and it just looks a little more mature, maybe, or maybe not. It's my schedule, right? This is my time. I'm tired. I deserve a break. I, I want to be heard, I, I want to be respected, I want to be affirmed. Or in the church, right? Yeah, what about my songs? What about my styles? What about my preferences? What about my programs that I want to see? We could be tempted toward consumerism that's out for serve me. And if you don't do that, you don't check the box, and I'm, I'm out. I'm going to go find someone else. We turn, we turn the Christian life into a buffet. Paul says, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. You see, humility is a mindset that consciously, intentionally considers the, the needs and the ideas and the feelings and the perspectives of others as more significant, as better, as more important than your own. Verse 4, he says, Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. The word look there is scopeo, where we get our word scope out, right? So when you typically, maybe not during Rona time, maybe during Rona time, I don't know, when you walk into a room, you're looking for the what? The seat that you want. You're looking for the best seat. You're looking for a place that you can sit and you're going to be able to to hear or whatever. He says, well, that same sort of intention that you have when you go into a store and you're looking for something for you or when you're looking for you. He says, learn to have that for others. Where you are seeking to scope out what is good for others here. Who could I listen to? Who could I learn from? Who needs to be served here? Rather than how can I be served here? Who's going to listen to me? Who's going to do what I'm hoping happens? I'm also not talking here about the kind of humility that gives and serves and sacrifices for others and then over time grows bitter because nobody's giving back. Well, at least somebody's showing up. At least somebody's serving. At least somebody's picking this up. See, that serving really has nothing to do with God either. That's still a self-centeredness that's seeking affirmation and praise. and, And certainly, I just want to pause and say, certainly we should be an encouraging congregation. That matters, but just guard your hearts here because there could be a sort of illusion to I'm a servant and I'm a bitter one. That's not, that's not what we're talking about here either, right? It's still self-focused. We're talking about a different kind of humility, not one that you can create in your own effort or that just happens or that you can read enough books on or that you can do enough classes on or you can translate enough Greek or Hebrew to figure out. Rather, we're talking about the type of humility that must be pursued by faith, that is given by his grace, that is supplied supernaturally with help from the Lord. You're like, that sounds really abstract then. How do I become humble? Martin Lloyd-Jones, the well-known pastor from London who is now with the Lord, in a sermon on John 4, he explained how you get humility this way. A friend was asking me the other day, how can I be humble? He felt there was pride in him and he wanted to know how to get rid of it. He seemed to think that I had some patent remedy and could tell him, well, do this and that and the other and then you will be humble. I said, I have no method or technique. I can't tell you to get down on your knees and believe in prayer because I know that Soon you will be proud of that. There's only one way to be humble, and that is to look into the face of Jesus Christ. You cannot be anything else when you see Him. That is the only way that you get humble. Humility is not something that you create within yourself. Rather, when you look at him, you realize who he is and what he has done, and you are humbled. And this is what Paul's doing for us here in this text. He says you want to grow in humility? It begins by, right, by having a right assessment of ourselves. And the only way that happens is to compare ourselves to the one who is truly great. Humility isn't gained by thinking less of ourselves and denying good graces that may be in our life, but it comes from looking at Jesus, which is exactly where he takes us in chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. Cultivate humility by beholding Christ. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men, being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Paul says we need humility here. We need humility to love one another here. So Paul is calling the Philippians, and he's calling us, to get our eyes off of our own ambitions and to place them on the almighty Jesus. He says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. What mind? Humility of mind. He says this humility of mind is yours in Christ. That means that God's Spirit gives all believers the mind of Christ where we learn to love what he loves. We learn to hate what he hates. Where we learn to be humble as he was humble by seeing him for who he is. Paul says, watch and be humbled. Verse 6, though he was in the form of God. He's highlighting here that Jesus existed the same way that the Father and the Spirit eternally have an eternal, glorious, all-powerful spirit. Before Jesus became Jesus, in the sense that before the Son of God became man, the Son of God had no physical body. The only visible manifestation of God in the Old Testament was Shekinah glory, which none could look upon and live. Jesus existed that way for eternity. Yet, it says, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Jesus didn't cling to, he didn't hold on to his rights as God. The glory and the praise and the honor do his name. But he emptied himself, it says here. This does not mean that he gave up his divinity. Jesus did not give up his divinity but he gave up, if you will, the position and the prestige that came with divinity. You see, emptying here is not subtraction, it's addition. Emptying is not subtraction in this equation, it's addition. He did not lay aside his deity, but he emptied himself by adding to himself the fullness of humanity. By taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, the eternal Son of God became a man. Fully God, fully man. He never stopped being God, but he did start embodying the status of a servant. You see, the glorious God stooped in the lowest way imaginable. The creator became like the creation. This, by the way, is one of the things, or one of the, the primary things that sets Christianity apart from every other religion. Nothing's like this. Every other religion is, you try to do something to work your way up to God or to the, you know, become one with the universe. You do something in order to get exalted. God says, you can't be good enough. I'm going to come down and do it for you. You see, Jesus has always been and he will ever continue to be God. Yet, Jesus did not insist on manifesting his majesty. Rather, he willingly humbled himself by covering it with flesh. He did not give up his divinity, but he covered it up and veiled it with flesh. We just sang about it. Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity. Pleased as man, with men to dwell, Jesus our Emmanuel. Jesus is divinity robed in humanity. That's what the word incarnation comes from. That's a, that's a theological term, it comes, it's a Latin, Latin word, carno, means flesh. Incarnation is in the flesh. This is what, what Christmas, if you will, is 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 about. It's, it's the remembering the humility of our God. John 1:14. The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glories of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus came with glory, yet he veiled it. How? By being conceived in the womb. Of a sinner. By being born in a stable surrounded by unclean animals and unclean people, he humbled himself by subjecting himself to breathing air like we breathe, to drinking like we drink, to eating like we eat, to sleep like we sleep. His glory was among us and it was most normally veiled Every once in a while, he'd do a miracle to show that he has the authority of heaven because he is the true God. So he manifests a little bit of glory there or in the Mount of Transfiguration where he calls Peter, James, and John comes up and they see him and Peter's like, yo, this is great, let's make a tent here. Which the Lord's like, you don't get it. Good impulse, Peter, but no, not yet. He's he's always veiling it. And some, by God's grace, had eyes to see it and to believe it. But many did not. So much so that they thought he was a crazy liar. So they put him on a cross. Which again was not Jesus being overpowered because he couldn't have stopped it. He says, you think I couldn't call 10,000 of angels right now to shut this thing down? I rule the universe. I made it but rather he humbled himself, the text says. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. The crucifixion was the intentional humiliation of our God. Intentional, yes, on sinners' part, but also by God's part. You see, Jesus did not regard himself to be above death. Even the most cruel, shameful, painful form of execution reserved for the most heinous of criminals. The aim of crucifixion was not just to kill, but to shame. He hung naked on a cross to shame him so they'd spit at him and mock him. That's the creator of the universe, humbling himself like that. Why? for the glory of God and for you. Because on that cross, what he did is he was shamed for all the sins that he never committed. In all the sins that you and I have, all of our lies, even the ones you walked in here this morning with, that you hope nobody's gonna find out, all of your lusts, all of your greed, All of your selfish ambition, all of your self-righteousness that looks down on others and assumes you're right, all of the slander, the gossip, the backbiting, all of the grumbling and complaining, all of the countless sins to us, but everyone known by God and paid for in full for any who would turn from their sin and trust in him. That's humility. Is there some service that's beneath you? Is there some role you're too good for? Consider Jesus. Is there some person that's just too tough for you to put up with? Consider Jesus. God became a man as a servant even death, but not just any death, death on a cross. It's as low as you could go. It's humbling to realize that even if you and I stoop to serve someone in our own mind, to humble yourself before them, to count them more significant than yourself, no matter how much you feel like you're stooping, it never even begins to compare with the way that Jesus stooped to love you and me. It's not even in the same, I mean, not even the same chart. See, no matter how far you have to go to forgive someone, to bless someone, to care for someone, no matter how long that conversation has to keep going, it never exceeds the lengths of humility that Jesus traveled to serve you and save you from your sin. You see, until we see our supposed greatness in light of true greatness, we'll be tempted to cling to our rights and our agendas and our opinions. But when we see Jesus for who he is, it has, if we see him rightly, a purifying, humbling effect that should move us to obey him and move us to love others, which we obey him by loving others. Now, It's very important to notice here in verse 9 through 11 what God the Father thought about Jesus' humiliation. Because if Jesus deserved it, like some have said that he did, then he would just leave him in the grave. And the Father would say, yep, he got what he deserved. But you see, Jesus didn't deserve what he got in the fullest sense. And that's why the Father raised him from the dead. Verse 9, therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He raised Jesus from the dead, and then he ascended into glory, installed him as the eternal priest and king, the Lord of heaven and earth of whom we are now citizens and our life together should be marked by a sort of humble love that's worthy of that name you see he's given the name that is above every name because he's called the son through the resurrection jesus is declared to be the victorious sovereign king of kings and lord of lords that means his name is greater than any other name It's greater than Muhammad, and Buddha, and Krishna, and Joseph Smith, and any politician who's ever lived, any entertainer who's ever been on the planet, any athlete, any pastor, anybody. His name is greater. Jesus is greater. And the only right response to him is humble worship. It's the only right response. You see, Jesus is a prophet, but he's more than a prophet. Jesus is an example, but he's more than an example. And we dishonor him if we treat him as anything less than God in the flesh who humbled himself and gave his life for us. This is not intended to guilt you into being humble, but rather it graces you into it. To see how glorious he is, it puts us low that we might lift him high. At his name, every angel and demon, every person saved and unsaved will bow their knees before him to the glory of God the Father. You see, Jesus loved and he served and he sacrificed for the Father's glory so that we could share in it. So that we could have that hope of glory that we've been studying all the way through the book of Revelation. This is intended to provoke humility to where it gives us a right estimation of ourselves. To where we see that we are, we're not better than Jesus. So as we hear this, we understand a unique angle on the good news of the gospel. Right? It's not humble yourself like Jesus and God will save you. It's not humble yourself like Jesus and God will save you. But rather, rather it's better. It is God who has given His Son, who humbled Himself in your place, and He died, and then He rose. And now in light of that we respond out of thankfulness and gratitude and amazement. Jesus in Matthew 10 I'm sorry Mark 10:45 the son of man came not to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. You see Jesus could have insisted on manifesting his majesty. He could have insisted on that and he would have been fully right to do so. But for our sakes, he did not. For our sakes, he who is rich became poor on our behalf. So in light of that, I want to ask you this morning, who can you not stoop to serve? Who who annoys you so much that you just can't put up with them anymore? Who has done you so much wrong that you cannot extend the sort of forgiveness that God has toward you? Who is it that you are unwilling to listen to and to reconcile with and to bear with? I'm not minimizing in any way the hurts and the pains that many of us have gone through in this life. In this room, there's marked with much suffering, much pain, much hurt, many betrayals, some of them very deep. What this text does for us is it highlights Jesus, who was Betrayed in ways that we can't imagine. Who forgave in ways that we never could. And who served in ways that he didn't need to. But that he delighted in doing because he loves us in spite of us. Derry Baptist Church, my encouragement for us is to learn to love in humility by looking to Jesus who humbled himself for us. That we might be marked of the sort of peculiar Humble love that would draw people to want to see this Jesus, both believers and non believers. May God give us grace as we do that together. Let's pray.